0: Two cases of the Omicron variant now in the U.S.
1: The concern, as we may have seen in South Africa, is the replacement of one variant with another.
0: I'm Jade Hindman with Maureen Kavanaugh. This is KPBS Midday Edition. <music> Local researchers are using sewage to identify cases of the new COVID variant.
2: For instance, with the Alpha and the Delta variants, we actually picked both of them up about two weeks ahead in our wastewater, then we saw them in our clinical swabs.
0: December 9th in Balboa Park is still on. We'll tell you about the safety measures and the band Baby Bushka plays their first show since the pandemic started. That's ahead on Midday Edition. Two cases of the Omicron variant have now been detected in the U.S. The first was found right here in California. Despite the confirmed presence of the new strain, President Biden indicated in his morning remarks today that new lockdowns or federal mandates will not be part of the plan to fight the virus.
3: My plan I'm announcing today pulls no punches. And while my existing federal vaccination requirements are being reviewed by the courts, This plan does not expand or add to those mandates, a plan that all Americans hopefully can rally around, and it should get bipartisan support, in my humble opinion.
0: The presence of the emerging strain of the virus in the U.S. raises questions over its potential transmissibility and side effects, and whether it could replace Delta as the dominant strain of COVID-19. Joining me now with more is Dr. David Pride, Infectious Disease Specialist and Head of the Pride Lab at UCSD, which plays a role in the research and identification of variants. Dr. Pride, welcome to the program.
1: Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: What do we now know about Omicron?
1: We know that it was first identified in South Africa. We know that since it has been identified, that mutation or that variant has made its way really across the world through Asia, through Europe, and now to the United States. And I think the expectation, it having made it so far so quickly, that it will probably make it all the way across the world.
0: So what are some of the challenges to knowing that information right now, given that there are so many people infected with this new variant already?
1: The biggest challenge is just the concern about mortality in general. Uh, the other concern is the concern about whether or not the vaccination will protect you. So what we've seen in the past is that we've seen relatively similar mortality rates based on the different variants. What has been different amongst the different variants has been their infectivity. So the concern, as we may have seen in South Africa, is the replacement of one variant with another. Um, So the question becomes, is Omicron going to be more infective than the Delta variant, which is an obvious cause for concern. And then, of course, we want to know about mortality with it as well. And then lastly, we want to know how effective is the vaccination? Because a lot of our populations in certain areas are really highly vaccinated. But if the virus is more infective for vaccinated individuals, then that means that it's probably going to spread through the population a bit better.
0: So, are people in Southern Africa who are infected with Omicron presenting with more severe disease?
1: Not that we know of uh, thus far. Um, many of the symptoms and the sort of rates of, uh, of, uh, of 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 disease or the rates of which they show symptoms ontology has been very similar to what we've seen for past viruses. Um, so uh, at least early on in the process, there is some optimism that it, it's, uh, um, the symptoms that you will get are pretty much uh, the same as what we've seen from previous versions or previous variants of the virus.
0: So what are the major factors then that set Omicron apart from Delta with regards to side effects and transmissibility?
1: the primary concern has to be that this particular variant of the virus is going to basically be more fit than, for example, the Delta variant that's out there, um, so that it might persist for long periods of time in our population. And we're obviously concerned about the idea that, you know, we're ultimately going to have to learn to live with the virus because it's just going to continue to mutate because there's so many people out there who are not protected against infection.
0: What role does the high rate of disease circulating in unvaccinated people play in mutating a virus like this?
1: It plays a huge role. Um, it, it, it's uh, very similar to sort of the things that we were taught in high school and in college, um, really about simple virology. And that is that um, when you have uh, an infectious entity like a virus that has a very high mutation rate, if you will give it a host that is susceptible it will continue to change and those changes that make it more fit will ultimately pass through the population and that is exactly what we're seeing uh, with the alpha then the delta and perhaps even now the omicron variant is that we're just seeing more fit versions of the virus and one of the things that is of primary concern to many of us is that you know the virus is mutating to become more fit in those who are unvaccinated, but it's also mutating to become more fit in those who are vaccinated because we're giving it the opportunity by having so many people in our population who are susceptible to uh, to the virus by not having been vaccinated.
0: So how do you distinguish a new coronavirus from a SARS-CoV-2 variant?
1: In general, we sequence these genomes. I mean, that's how we Uh, identified this the sort of original SARS-CoV-2 just by sequencing the full genome. And the technology now is available to do these sorts of things rapidly. If you suspect someone has a viral infection that you do not have a test for it, um, you can literally take their cells, extract their DNA, And RNA and sequence it and look for viral structures. And it just so happens that, you know, SARS-CoV-2 is a coronavirus, very similar to other coronaviruses that we've seen before, Um, so it's very easy to assemble these smaller genomes from that uh, uh, material so that uh, anyone who is infected or displaying symptoms, because sequencing is so prevalent, and so cost effective now across the world, we have the ability to sort of sequence and figure out whether we're seeing something new, whether we're seeing something that is basically a newer version of something we've seen before, uh, or whether we're just seeing the same old thing that we've seen before. All of those things are possible in a very rapid time frame.
0: Some have said that the travel bans instituted in countries like South Africa are not effective measures to contain the new variant. Do you agree with that?
1: I do agree that it's probably not going to be effective. With that said, though, by having these travel bans, you can perhaps alter the curve at least a little bit, meaning that it goes up a bit more slowly than it would otherwise, so that places may be able to alter the curve slightly just by instituting some type of a travel ban. They will not be able to prevent this virus from ultimately making it into their population. And of course, if it is as fit as many people believe it is already, there's obviously the potential that it will take over and become the new dominant variant.
0: I've been speaking with Dr. David Pride, Infectious Disease Specialist and Virologist at UC San Diego. Dr. Pride, thank you very much for joining us today. No problem. Who would have thought sewage would be of any value, especially in the fight against COVID? Well, scientists at UC San Diego are now using it to detect the presence of the Omicron variant early. Joining me to explain just how this all works is Smruthi Karthikeyan, postdoctoral researcher at UC San Diego School of Medicine and lead on the wastewater screening project. Smruthi, welcome. Thank you for having me. So first, what is the significance of sewage in the fight against COVID?
2: When the pandemic first started and there were not enough testing rates, but there were high prevalence rates, we had to somehow keep up with tracking the actual or true infection dynamics. This is specifically important because now we know people who are asymptomatic or pre-symptomatic can still spread the virus to other people. So sewage is um, agnostic in that way, so anyone who's infected can potentially shed the virus in their stool, irrespective of um, the disease severity. So looking for the SARS-CoV-2 vital loads and the RNAs, the sewage will essentially give us a snapshot of how well a community is doing in terms of SARS-CoV-2 infection.
0: How much sooner would you be able to detect the Omicron variant by testing wastewater than through, you know, a regular no swab test, for example?
2: It actually just depends on how frequently or how intensively we're testing. For, in, um, for instance, with the Alpha and the Delta variants, we actually picked both of them up about two weeks ahead. In our wastewater, then we saw them in our clinical swabs. The main advantage sewage offers is that um, it does not depend on someone actually going to get tested or choosing to get tested. And it's very likely that someone who does not think they have symptoms uh, would be potentially infected. And there's no chance that you know someone who is not showing any symptoms is actually voluntarily going to go get tested unless they think they've been exposed. But wastewater will pick that signal up no matter what, whether you're. Choosing to get tested or not, if you're infected, we'll still pick it up in the wastewater.
0: And so at this point, you've not picked up any of the Omicron variant in your samples.
2: That is correct. But however, we haven't um, sequenced the latest samples yet, and those are going on the next week and this week. So our samples range from the entirety of UC San Diego campus. In addition to that, we also get wastewater samples from a, a bunch of different schools around the San Diego school districts. And in addition, we also sample um, the San Diego County's main wastewater treatment plant at Point Loma. That wastewater treatment plant aggregates waste or sewage from the entire um, San Diego County, which captures about two and a half million residents. So that one gives us a bigger picture of what are the main lineages or variants of concern circling in the entire San Diego County. And um, our uh, data so far has shown that Um, The wastewater actually provides a really accurate estimate of the relative abundances or proportions of the circulating lineages, with a lot of times the new or emerging variants appearing in wastewater ahead of our clinical detection.
0: So tell me, how does this work? How do you all actually collect the wastewater?
2: So we have um, wastewater sampling robots that are placed at manholes or sewer systems throughout campus. For instance, um, UCSD has about 130 of these auto samplers that are programmed to collect um, wastewater at every given interval. So we can program them to collect every 15 minutes throughout the day, and then it collects it in a bottle and stores it so the next day we just pick up these bottles and screen for the SARS-CoV-2 viral RNA in them. So in campus, we have about 360 campus buildings that are covered by our wastewater program. So in essence, the entirety of UC San Diego campus is covered by the wastewater surveillance program. And we screen for the SARS-CoV-2 RNA every day in all of these buildings. And every time we see a positive, we alert the building's residents saying that someone there is potentially infected and they they should go get tested. Once that person is identified, they're moved to an isolation dorm. So this is something that is being done every day. So we sample in the morning and we get the results in the evening. So within the same day, we can notify the buildings that have a potential infected individual in them. And this is especially important because we don't have any mandated testing, um, testing policies on campus, because most of them are vaccinated at this point. So unless someone gets a Notification saying um, there was a wastewater positive. It's very unlikely that they're going to go and um, seek out uh, clinical testing. For the county, we do the same thing. We pick up wastewater samples every day, uh, five days a week, from the school districts. These are all school elementary schools and middle schools distributed across the San Diego County, and we screen for the same SARS-CoV-2 viral RNA in these samples as well. And every time we find a positive, we alert the principals of the school so they can notify the staff and the parents of the students who are in that school on that day.
0: How helpful has this method of detection for the presence of COVID been in the past?
2: So it's extremely effective because a lot of times if it gives you a good lead time, that gives the public health enough time to you know, adjust their interventions accordingly. On campus, especially, it enabled the detection of 85% of our campus infected individuals earlier than what clinical or diagnostic testing would have done.
0: And so at this point, no detection of Omicron here, but given another week, we may have a different picture.
2: That is correct. So we're still processing samples from this week. So yeah, it, it could all change quickly.
0: I've been speaking with Smruthi Karthikeyan, postdoctoral researcher at UC San Diego School of Medicine and lead on the wastewater screening project. Smruthi, thank you so much for joining us.
2: You're welcome. I hope you have a wonderful day.
3: KPBS on Demand is supported by Under the Sun Foundation presenting the Candlewood Arts Festival in Borrego Springs, featuring temporary public art projects that engage community and place. March 23rd. More at candlewoodartsfestival.org.
4: This is KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Maureen Cavanaugh with Jade Heinman. The December night celebration takes place in Balboa Park this weekend, but just like last year, the event will be an in-car drive-through experience with food vendors and entertainment. That drive-through decision might have seemed like an overabundance of caution a couple of weeks ago, but now with the new Omicron variant, it seems like a wise choice. The Taste of December night's event starts tomorrow and is happening through Sunday in the Inspiration Point parking lots near Balboa Park. And joining me is the City of San Diego Special Events and Filming Department Executive Director, Natasha Kalura. And Natasha, welcome. Thank you. Can you explain how this drive through version of December Nights will work?
5: Absolutely. People will be coming in through Inspiration Point Way off of Park Boulevard. They'll drive through, they'll get their map, which has a list of all the vendors and their menu items. So they'll have a chance to take a look and see where they want to stop at, and and what they'd like to eat. And they can go through the various vendors and decide if they want to try a different vendor. There's a passing lane in our main lot. They can jump in that passing lane and then head over to the vendor that they would like to order from. So there's a little bit of something for, for everyone.
4: And do people stay in their cars to order the food? Yes, people will
5: be staying in their vehicles uh, for everybody's safety and hopefully to keep everybody uh, moving through the event and to get to as many locations as possible. But it is a drive-through. There is an option, though, a very limited option for those who do not have access to a vehicle. Uh, We do have electric carts that will be driving through and people can queue up and wait for a cart. We'll have about three to four available. Again, it's a limited opportunity, but we did want to offer an option for those without vehicles.
4: What other kinds of safety precautions are in place?
5: The drive through is designed to keep everybody safe and uh, to eliminate the crowds and the interactions between all the individuals. As you know, our traditional December nights is 350,000 people over two days. And this is something that, again, is designed to keep people safe and in their vehicles and, and being able to move through uh, in the safety of their cars.
4: Now, I checked out the Taste of December Nights website, and you certainly have a lot of food. Can you give us an idea of the range of tastes that are available?
5: Absolutely. So we have amazing food. We have Kenyan food, we have Cajun food, Mexican food, you know, for for, uh, little ones, maybe we have the corn dogs, we have um, Blasian food, there really is something for everybody. And we also have the international cottages from Babel Park who have home baked goods from all around the world.
4: Now, there's also entertainment. How does that work?
5: We have a stage located in the middle, and there's a list of uh, the entertainment schedule for when they'll be appearing during the event. uh, It's on the website, sandiego.gov slash Taste of December Nights. And so you can check out the schedule and you'll be able to hear a little bit of entertainment as you drive through. And who are some of the performers? So we have a variety of performers. We have dancers, we have singers, we have a whole list of performers that you can find on our website and can check out and see. uh, Hopefully you'll be able to view them as you drive by.
4: This is the second year for the drive-through Taste of December Nights at Balboa Park. How popular was it last year?
5: It was very successful last year. Uh, We had over 4,000 cars over the three-day period, but we have redesigned the format to get even more vehicles through more quickly and be able to experience more of the food vendors and the variety that we have available.
4: And what are you expecting this weekend?
5: We expect it to be another successful event. Uh, The first 500 cars a day will receive a goodie bag with some fun items like a bike light from Sandag, a reusable straw from Think Blue, and everybody who gets a bag will get a free ice cream coupon at Handles Homemade Ice Cream in Pacific Beach. So we are expecting to be a great event and uh, we hope to see everybody there.
4: Are you concerned at all that the concern about the new variant will keep people away?
5: We have actually uh, been in contact with county public health, and again, uh, you know, the same precautions that have been in place for COVID are still in place. Um, So we do encourage everyone to be safe. We're being safe by having this drive-through event. So we feel that this is actually a great opportunity for those who are concerned, who want to remain uh, cautious. That this is an alternative to perhaps other events um, because it keeps them safe in their vehicles and provides them an opportunity to get out and celebrate the holidays.
4: Now, people can also give back and support charities during the Taste of December nights. Tell us about the collection drives.
5: We are very excited to have the charitable giving elements included this year. So one of the elements is a change for change opportunity so that if you have any spare change, we want you to donate that. We're trying to collect a thousand pounds of change to help homeless youth in San Diego through the YMCA Community Support Services. We also are asking for food donations for the San Diego Food Bank. And uh, we'd love for people to bring those. Soapy's Car Wash will thank you with a free Magic Joke Car Wash card while supplies last. So please bring those canned goods. And lastly, we do have a socks and underwear drive that uh, we would love for people to bring new socks and underwear to donate to Father Joe's Villages for those experiencing homelessness.
4: Now, December Nights has been a tradition in Balboa Park for more than 40 years. And of course, taste of December Nights has been adapted to keep that tradition going. How do you see the future for the December Nights event? Has the city learned anything new by changing it because of COVID?
5: We are hopeful that we can return back to our traditional December nights in 2022, and of course, we are ready to adapt as needed depending on the conditions next year, Um, but we are hopeful that we can return back to our event, but we will continue to be aware of any opportunities and protocols and ways to mitigate any type of health risks, and we're ready to handle that if it comes up. We are looking at ways for the entire community to be able to come to December nights and look at access opportunities for those that may not have a vehicle uh, to drive down and want to ride their bike or take public transportation. So we want to definitely expand our access and our mobility options for next year as well. So that is something that has come out of this pandemic is how can we do more for this particular event in the future.
4: Taste of December Nights takes place this Friday through Sunday from 11 a.m. to 10 p.m. in the Inspiration Point parking lots near Balboa Park. And I have been speaking with Natasha Kalura, Executive Director of the City of San Diego's Special Events and Filming Department. Natasha, thank you. Thank you so much.
0: California rules meant to protect outdoor workers from the dangers of wildfire smoke are almost never enforced. That's the finding of an investigation by KQED and the California newsroom. Farida Jabvalo-Romero has the latest on the ongoing series, Dangerous Air.
6: Breathing wildfire smoke can lead to serious health problems like worsening asthma and heart failure. So when there's unhealthy levels of wildfire smoke, California employers are required to reduce exposure, such as by moving workers indoors or providing N95 masks. But in Fresno, the state's top producing agricultural county, many farm workers I spoke with say they've continued to work in heavy smoke with no protections. In a field by the highway, a man pulls dry grapevines from the soil. He's worked in US agriculture for 15 years. I hand him a wrapped N95 mask and ask if his boss ever offered him one.
1: No, 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 no. no
6: No. At work they haven't given us masks at all, he says. We're not using his name because he says he fears retaliation from his employer. And like more than 40% of the state's ag workers, he's undocumented. An estimated 4 million people work outdoors in California. Over the last two years the rules been in place, the state has faced the worst wildfire seasons on record. But the agency tasked with protecting workers' safety cited employers for violating the smoke rules just 11 times. That's according to data obtained by KQED and the California Newsroom. The official who was in charge of enforcement at Cal-OSHA just got a bigger job as head of federal OSHA. Senators will each have five minutes for a round of questions.
4: Before we begin... During
6: his Senate confirmation hearing this spring, Doug Parker told lawmakers a top priority is to enforce worker safety laws.
1: And then we also have to be able to deliver the goods once those workers have the trust in us to come forward.
6: He declined to speak with KQED and directed us to Dan Lucido, who's now the acting chief of Kalosha. We are a leader in providing worker protection, including against smoke. Do you really believe that there's only 11 violations of this law over two years? So first of all, we can only respond to complaints that are issued and in, in all of the cases where we responded and found evidence of a violation, we issued a citation. Back in the field in Fresno, the worker says he didn't know about the rule, so he couldn't complain about not getting the required protections. His employer never told him how to stay safe on smoky days, he says. Other farm workers I talked to said the same thing. Glasses. And that's something the rule says employers must also do in a language workers understand. Can two management employs workers in this field.
2: So I we already um sent over your email to our attorney, so he is the one that's gonna be responding.
6: Angie Garcia works at Cantuac Management. I contacted her after sending a request for comment.
2: We provide everything necessary for them to, you know, use while they're working.
6: Later, the attorney told KQED the company is in compliance with the smoke safety rules, but declined to provide any evidence. What's really needed, advocates and state lawmakers say, are strike teams of Kalosha inspectors in the fields on smoky days. But a bill to do just that was gutted in the state legislature earlier this year, after Governor Gavin Newsom's administration opposed it.
0: That was Farida Javala-Romero with the latest on the ongoing series, Dangerous Air.
4: The holidays are wrapped in a season of giving and donations. In the wake of the COVID catastrophe, basic food has become an even greater gift for those in need. And right now, community college students are among those who need it most. KPBS education reporter M.G. Perez shares startling statistics and some stories of students hungry for hope.
3: You're very welcome, man. Sounds of a food drive in action. Hunger is on the move among California's community college students. The state confirms half of them, 50%, don't have the money or resources to buy enough food. Uh, I have some more mashed potatoes up here. 18-year-old C.J. Pollock is a freshman at San Diego Mesa College. He moved here from San Jose with plans to keep playing soccer and begin his education toward a career in civil engineering. Just before Thanksgiving, he joined hundreds of fellow students lined up in their cars in one of Mesa's parking garages. This is the third annual Pack the Pantry Food Drive, a community collaboration between the college, the San Diego Food Bank and California Coast Credit Union, established by teachers in 1929 to improve education. Never expecting in 2021, Students would be going hungry. Christine Lee speaks for Cal Coast.
5: That's a problem because what happens is these students have the potential of you know, dropping a class, missing class, or you know, even not achieving their academics to the potential
3: that they normally might. CJ is grateful to be able to fill up his car with so many cans and boxes.
5: This helps me because then I don't have to go grocery shopping
3: and then I can also
5: afford rent. This is like it's a lot of food and it's like gonna it help me in the long run so I'm able to
7: to eat. Hi,
1: how are you doing? Good. Thank you. Go ahead
8: and
7: grab
3: Mesa College also hosted an early Thanksgiving dinner for students who could use an extra meal. Hunger insecurity is happening on four-year university campuses, too. The University of California reports 44% of its students often go hungry, and 14% of them don't have stable housing. That percentage is even higher for community college students. Do you live uh, in apartment student housing?
5: No, I'm currently homeless. Oh, you are? Yeah.
3: Alex Montez represents one of those statistics, and he is determined to turn it into his success story. He's an immigrant from Colombia, trying to find housing through the San Diego LGBT Community Center. At the moment, he uses Mesa College's basic needs Resource Center called The Stand, where there is donated clothing and food.
6: It helps me a lot because my budget is really, really limited, so I'm constantly hungry.
3: (laughs) Johanna Alaman is the Stand coordinator who also comforts students when they need it most. They don't have anybody who cares, anybody who will help them,
0: and so listening to those stories can get emotionally overwhelming, but we do everything we can, and most of
3: them leave feeling at least that the college loves them. So on this side we have all your canned food goods. At Cal State San Marcos, they packed a new pantry. The ribbon was just cut on the school's student cougar pantry, which is now 1,200 square feet. Filled with food, both non-perishable and frozen. There are diapers and hygiene products for struggling students who are also parents. All provided by Feeding San Diego, the San Diego Food Bank, and local grocery stores as another solution to the problem. Alondra Gutierrez is the pantry coordinator.
2: Having access to
6: a meal or, you know, ingredients that can put together a meal, that way you're not stressing over having to worry about what to eat while well, On top of that, having to worry about different stressors that come from being a student.
3: That's food for thought, as back at Mesa College, Alex Montez begins an education for his future career.
6: Probably develop or help develop some of the new generation of bionic arms and limbs. That's probably what
0: I want to
4: achieve.
3: Food feeds students while nourishing their dreams.
4: Joining me is KPBS education reporter M.G. Perez. M.G., welcome. Hello. Now, this story, of course, takes place during the holidays when food distribution services are at their peak. But do these college pantries
3: operate year-round? They do operate year-round, but as uh, is the case in the rest of the world, we all seem to think about donating uh, at the holidays. And that is why this uh, story came to our attention, and we are happy to promote it. So what kinds of foods are available to students at the pantries? Maureen, there's much more of a variety than there used to be. It used to just be canned goods and non-perishables. But thanks to donations, uh, there is refrigeration at many of the pantries, including the two that we visited. So there is frozen food offered, and that obviously uh, increases the variety that is available for students.
4: Right. Now, I think many of us from previous generations can remember early days of struggling on ramen noodles and maybe beans and rice, but the need seems so much greater for students now. What are the reasons for that?
3: It is absolutely the cost of living and where we live. We live in Southern California, San Diego, where the cost of living is so high and inflation is in the news every day. And think about uh, what that might look like in today's terms for students who are just trying to survive. If they were making minimum wage, let's say $15 an hour, that's about $2,000 maybe take home uh, on a monthly basis. And guess what rent averages in San Diego? About that amount. So survival is really a challenge for many of these students.
4: It sounds like Feeding San Diego and the San Diego Food Bank are taking the lead in providing pantries for students. Are they getting any government help?
3: Actually, yes. The good news is the state of California has designated millions of dollars to fund pantries like the ones that we have talked about and the ones that exist at so many uh, colleges. That funding is to pay for people to run them and for resources. So it is truly a community effort uh, that the government is involved in, especially here in California.
4: And are students eligible for the CalFresh food stamp program?
3: They are, but it's a fine line that you walk because some, in some cases, one student that I talked to, she just made enough to not get those benefits. And it's not much, uh, so it really is a challenge. That's a great place to start for them because it's a couple of hundred dollars a month that they can use to purchase food.
4: Now, one of the students we heard in your story was homeless, Is that also a big problem
3: for community college students? You would be surprised at how many students are homeless. And homeless can be couch surfing. Homeless can be I'm staying with a relative for a few weeks, but then I've got to find someplace else to live. This story particularly concerns community college students. Many of the four-year universities have dorms, and that's not the case for community colleges. So those students are at a particular disadvantage uh, in having to find not only food, but a roof to put over their head.
4: Now, for a lot of people, it's tough admitting you need help, that you can't afford basic necessities like food. Is there any effort made to overcome the stigma students might feel in accepting help
3: from a food pantry? Absolutely. The ones that we visited, the stand at Mesa College, Uh, truly is set up like a department store. There is clothing, uh, and it's also like a grocery store where the food is located. So students have a chance to actually shop. It's not a matter of just being handed something, but having a choice in what you put into your body and, and you use as a resource.
4: For the students that are struggling, it must take an awful lot of determination to keep up with their studies and keep their dreams alive. What do they tell you about that?
3: Maureen, as heart wrenching as this story is, and it is, to be interviewing a student who is homeless and still working so hard to get good grades and a degree, what I want you to know is that I saw a lot of hope and resilience. And as I've talked about, I'm a former teacher, and one thing that I that I was committed to to do above anything else was bring hope to my students. And I want people to know that there is hope and that these students are working through some very difficult challenges, and we wish them the best.
4: Now, I have a feeling that some people listening will probably like to help. How can they get involved?
3: The good news is that many colleges across the county are offering pantry services. So my suggestion would be to find a college near you, a college where you have students attending or that you have an interest in, and go to their website. Uh, At Mesa College, it's called The Stand, and if you go to their website, there is a tab uh, that will make it easy for you to donate and help. Uh, The same is true at City College and the other community colleges in the county.
4: I've been speaking with KPBS education reporter, M.G. Perez, and M.G., thank you.
3: Thank you.
7: Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com.
4: This is KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Maureen Kavanaugh with Jade Heinemann. San Diego's live music scene has been slowly returning to life in the past several months, though the pandemic's long shadow still lingers. For the first time since early 2020, the San Diego band Baby Bushka will return to the stage, playing a show at the Casbah this Saturday night. Centered on the music of art pop music pioneer Kate Bush, Baby Bushka is a vibrant and eclectic musical experience featuring many of San Diego's most talented female musicians. Here's Baby Bushka with Cloud Busting. I Here to tell us about what they've been up to since they last performed and how the band has been changed by the pandemic is founder and lead vocalist of Baby Bushka, Natasha Kazali. And Natasha, welcome.
8: Hi, thank you for having me.
4: I wonder, are you feeling nervous about performing live after such a long time?
8: Maybe a little bit. I'm feeling very excited and the anticipation is is what's getting me, and just making sure that everything uh, goes well. Just a lot of work and preparation, so just keeping my eye on the ball.
4: <laughs> now, Baby Bushka is based on interpreting the music of British singer songwriter Kate Bush, as I said, and your performances are described as half theater, half rock band. <laughs> That was Baby Bushka with Running Up the Hill. Now, how would you describe the Baby Bushka band?
8: I would describe Baby Bushka as a beautiful, bewitching powerhouse of a show with eight women. There is choreographed dancing, four-part vocal harmonies, um, lots of humor and sincerity and magic.
4: And you don't like the term cover band.
8: Why not? Well, I think when people think of tributes or cover bands, they think of imitation. And uh, I know that that's not what Baby Bushka is about for us. And our audiences say that as well. You know, it's more of an experience and this beautiful interpretation of her music. And so there is no imitating Kate Bush. You know, we all sing her. And it's amazing because I really think it does take eight women to (laughs) do Kate Bush. And that's what's really fun about the show.
4: You know, although Baby Bushka is back it's not the same band as before the pandemic. Tragically, a member of the band passed away over the last year. Can you tell us about that?
8: Yeah. Nina Leilani Deering, she was our dark bush. We all have bush names. And she was our keyboardist and an amazing vocalist and a dear friend. And she was part of many, many projects here. She co-founded Voices of Our City Choir. So when she passed away, it just sent ripples through the entire music community of San Diego. And especially for us, it was really hard. um, Just kind of finding the strength and to continue this project after she died and uh, finding that way through the, through all the grief and and wanting to honor her and just not wanting our story to end, you know, with her death and the pandemic. So bringing in these two members has helped us find that spirit to continue on and honor her through um, the music of Kate Bush and connect with the audiences again, is what we're really excited about.
4: Here's a little clip of this women's work featuring Nina Leilani Deering.
1: I know you have a little life in you yet I know you have a lot of strength left I should be cracking, but I just can't let it show I should be hoping, but I can't stop thinking All the things I should have said that I never said All the things we should have done that we never did All the things I should have given, but I didn't
4: Tell us a little bit more about that decision to move on after this terrible rupture in your band. Was it a group decision?
8: Yeah, I think that we all collectively felt this urge to play again together. So, you know, I asked everyone at the new year, do you do you all want to continue? And, and if so, like, um, you know, this is my vision of how we can do that. And, and everyone sort of made their re- recommitments. It was like we got married again or something. And and so, yeah, that was really beautiful. And Marie came on board and Heather. And and we've been working the last year to try to make that possible. Now, besides that great loss, how else
4: has the pandemic changed the band and your own personal approach to making music?
8: Well, I think it's just put everything into perspective. You know, I, I don't think any of us will take for granted the privilege it is to play live. and. And to connect with audiences and to have to perform, you know, um, and I think that's what's going to be the most exciting to get on stage. I personally haven't been on stage in, since the pandemic. I know some of the other girls have, but I think it's just that, you know, just making sure to treasure those moments together and, and the time we have in this band and and to never take it for granted again.
4: Now Baby Bush is a band that thrives on audience participation, dancing, partying. The audience <laughs> is part of this magic experience. How did your music go on without that during the pandemic?
8: That was hard, but we actually started a Patreon and um that was a really beautiful way to stay connected to the fans and to also continue to dive into the world of Kate Bush we called it our school of magic. And so we all, I started a podcast and we dove into the different songs and we made videos and we even cooked recipes that Kate Bush made. And so that sort of community that Patreon provides was a wonderful way to continue living in the music and and connect with fans.
4: What will you be performing this Saturday at the CASBA? Are they going to be your standards or new music?
8: So we have added a couple songs and we've also added a memorial arc towards the end of the show for Nina, um, where we sing a few songs and we hand out programs and and we sing her song that she um, used to sing with us, which would bring audiences to their knees every time that it was this woman's work that you played earlier. And um, so, yeah, we have this whole moment planned so that we can recognize and acknowledge her passing without actually talking about it. Instead, we can say it all through the lyrics and the music of Kate Bush.
4: It sounds like Nina's passing is still pretty raw for you.
8: Uh, yeah. I mean, she she was one of my closest friends and, and Baby Bushka really is a sisterhood. So I think about her every day. And I think, you know, bringing Baby Bushka back to the stage you know, it's actually four years exactly that we even first played our first show at the CASBA. So there's just a lot of cosmic poetry involved in this return. And um, and so her memory is very much burning alive in us, for sure.
4: What is it about Kate Bush's music that continues to inspire so much of your work?
8: As an artist, I, she has pulled so much inspiration for her songs you know books movies so she's like this very interested person in the world you know and she's she's been so it's almost like this child who's just like fascinated by everything so when you listen to her discography and you hear these songs you know that so much of them are stories and 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 she is a performer you know using her use of mime and theater and dance and uh, cinema it's it's just so rich. It's like a, this bottomless inspiration, and um, her story is just fascinating. She's unlike any other artist, I, I think, and and she has a s- serious cult following. And it's kind of remarkable that we are the only Cape Bush tribute in America, and um, and I think that it just adds to the mystery. She's a mysterious woman, <laughs> and uh, and just so talented. Does she know about
4: Baby Bushka?
8: I think she does, because when we went to the UK after 10 months of being a band, we we crowdfunded to go on this pilgrimage tour, we called it, to the UK. And um, her ex-partner and bass player, Del Palmer, Uh, actually found out about us and he wrote to us before we went. So we knew that he knew of us and he came to our very first show in London. It was absolutely terrifying. (laughs) We were like, they're going to hate us, but they loved us and so did he. And and we asked him if he would pass on a letter to her from us and he did. And so I know she knows about us, but she's probably busy making another album, hopefully. (laughs) So
4: after the Casbah, what are the plans for Baby Bushka?
8: We hope that uh, we'll do another set of shows in the spring right before we go back to the UK. So we are planning to return and do Ireland and Wales and England and Scotland in May, 2022.
4: Okay, then. I've been speaking with Natasha Kazali, lead vocalist and founder of Baby Bushka. Thank you so much for speaking with us.
8: Thank you for having me.
4: Baby Bushka at the Casbah is this Saturday. Doors open at 8.30.